they want to portray to the Chinese people and to the outside world that they have the situation under control. But of course, this pandemic is far from over. And the Chinese leaders, just like leaders in any other country, don't know what's around the corner. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 17 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. On the phone line, I'm joined by Mark Vanden Bosch. And today's topic is China. We have the head of the Asia program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, Bjorn Yardin, who we'll be talking to in just a little while. But first, uh, Mark, so much to talk about. We're not going to cover it all today in this episode, but it does seem like, you know, this intro song that we used, it is uh, composed by you. We should give... Uh, Give fair credit to you for that. This uh, story for the ages is certainly uh, living up to that billing here this year, 2020. Not just the coronavirus crisis. That, of course, is the main event, but uh, all this other stuff that is happening, China and Hong Kong, which we'll talk a little bit about uh, with uh, Bjorn Yardin later on. And also now it's happening in uh, the United States, in the state of uh, Minnesota. Tragic uh, events there. Today's Friday afternoon in Sweden and... uh, well, it's an unfolding story, so we're not going to really cover that in sort of breaking news detail. But it just seems like so much is going on, Mark, that it's really kind sure. of hard to make sense of things at this point. I agree with you. I mean, it feels like a civil rights movement, 1968, all over again in the United States right now. You know, I still think the corona pandemic itself, providing a framework for all these things to take place, I think somehow they are correlated, one breach the other. It's such an odd time to be living in. There's actually statistics that showed that they did surveys in the United States recently. 47% of all people questioned in the survey showed signs of some kind of depression, which is in direct relation to corona, lockdown, and all the news we're hearing around us. So I, I think these things feed other things as well. So there's probably some some correlation there as well. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's certainly an explosive moment. Even locusts are on the agenda. We're, okay, we'll catch up with that in your 360 mark, which is one of the uh, the highlights of every episode of uh, this podcast. But first, it's always good to start a little bit with some Swedish news, since uh, that is kind of hmm. bread and butter as producing this podcast here in Stockholm. There's so much international interest in Sweden at the moment. And I think that, um, I don't know, I don't know what your sense is, Mark, but it seems a little bit like the narrative is shifting a little bit at this point. It seems like things are getting a little bit negative here in Sweden. There was uh, quite a bit of consensus and support for the government's uh, handling of this. That does seem to be cracking a bit now. And one of the areas where it uh, seems to be coming apart is on testing. The fact that Sweden has not done that much testing, despite three or more months into this crisis, there's still not widespread testing in this country. You know, whenever there are new tests available, we are being told by the chief epidemiologist here that we shouldn't, as private individuals, waste our time with these tests because they're not reliable. They should be reserved for people working within the health community. Uh, but there's still a great deal of frustration. I mean, uh, myself, for example, I am one of those individuals, among many others, who feel I have had corona. I'd like to know if I've developed antibodies or not so that I can interact with uh, older people, with my wife's uh, grandparents, for example. The tests are, are not readily available, and we're also being told that they're not reliable. So there's very mixed messages in relation to that, and it's very frustrating. I mean, you see news stories as well. Sweden went for herd immunity. How did that go? Some more in-depth reporting from some of the different media outlets around us. And we're being questioned quite a bit. And as you say here, the consensus where people have sort of rallied around the flag in support of Understignal and the strategy. Uh, it's still way too early to find out this was the right strategy. But looking purely at the numbers, it doesn't seem particular. 
particularly successful at this stage. I think for the second week in a row also, Sweden was, I think, the highest per capita death rate in the world. And as the country also is starting to go into the summer vacation period and people are viewing this as sort of the new normal, you can tell in the interactions, this whole aspect of social distancing is starting to become a total joke, really. Uh, will that be reflected in the mortality rate of fatalities in the coming months? All right, Mark, so let's, uh, let's get out of this country now and uh, let's do your 360. Absolutely. But before I get to that, I'm going to get to the lighter side of things. Like, we, we need a amusing we, story. We need a little comic we need a little bit here, of that today, absolutely. Well, the lockdowns throughout Europe have been uh, gradually lifted over the last two or three weeks. And some of the airline companies have used that opportunity to restart journeys to these parts of Europe that had been closed previously. And one of them uh, jumped the gun a bit because uh, they said, OK, now Italy is reopening. Great. We can resume our service to start Sardinia. So they uh, let their passenger board and took off from Dusseldorf on their way to sunny Sardinia. And when they got there and they took contact with the uh, control tower of the local airport, they were told, you're not allowed to land. What do you mean we're not allowed to land? We're still in lockdown. What do you mean you're still in lockdown? You are not allowed to land. So they tried to negotiate this in a circle around Sardinia for about 45 minutes or so. And then they realized their fuel was going to run pretty low. So oh, they had geez. to turn around and return to Düsseldorf. But also the discussing implications that we sometimes in this podcast talk about indirect consequences of the coronavirus. And then we're going to get to Africa and those famous locusts. There's been, uh, well, climate change is not a new topic, and for a variety of reasons, it's been a bit wetter in certain parts of Africa over the last couple of years because there have been more cyclones in the Indian Ocean. It just turned out to create some great conditions for the uh, dissemination of these huge swarms of locusts in mostly eastern Africa. Now, when we talk about swarms of locusts, they can be as much as 50 times 80 kilometers in size and in surface area. So we're talking about huge numbers, millions and millions of locusts. And these darn things are very good at eating, and uh, a locust can eat its own way several times a day. So when you have one of these swarms coming down on an agricultural area where people are trying to grow wheat, other grains for sustenance, they can just wipe this out in just a matter of hours. And there are a number of uh, swarms now throughout Africa, and experts who know about these things expect a, an explosion that, that the number of locusts will increase 400-fold unless something is being done. And something is being done, well, normally, we've gotten a lot better at mitigating some of these uh, things. I mean, locusts and plagues, I mean, you go all the way back to the Bible, it's nothing new. But we now have the technology to control this to some extent. However, corona has created some major disruptions because of airport closings and, and supply chains being disrupted so that the pesticides that are normally used to combat this plague are not available in Eastern Africa right now, or at least not in the numbers that are needed. And this will eventually translate into huge problems with food security and may lead to uh, additional famines. So you can see, uh, you know, everything kind of fits together. Also, from an environmental perspective, and still on the corona thing. Oh, by the way, you're welcome to interrupt me. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going off. I was just going to add. Better uh, if you interrupt me. Oh, no, no, sure. I was just, just going to add, Mark, that uh, we should actually call a priest or something. We should. We need to get some some sort of theological expert onto this uh, show to uh, talk about some of the um, theological aspects of this. Uh, as you mentioned, this feels biblical with the locusts and the plagues and everything else. I'm sure that uh, religious thinkers are really reflecting upon uh, this uh, this year of 2020. I think maybe we, that would actually, I think, make for quite an interesting episode of this podcast. Excellent idea. Also on the area of climate, and we have had over the last several years, obviously, a shift in technology away from fossil fuels. Electric vehicles in particular become increasingly popular. However, electric vehicles are pricey 
And in the face of uh, the corona crisis, a lot of people have been impacted economically. So these price tags on the vehicles are become unattainable for the average person. And in addition to that, governments have been very active in terms of providing incentives, tax breaks and other types of uh, financial incentives to buy electric vehicles. But the governments right now are dealing with another type of economic crisis, which means they can't afford to do this anymore. And this has an impact on some of the major car manufacturers, particularly, for example, Volkswagen, the biggest car manufacturer in the world that has had a strategy to be a leader in the production of electric vehicles by the year 2024. But now they're seeing that the gas prices are going way down in light of demand and people don't have the money to buy these electric vehicles. So now they sort of have to rethink their entire strategy. You can see once again the domino effect of uh, reactions that start with Corona and Wuhan just six months ago. And we won't even get into Elon Musk and Tesla and some of his comments and uh, some of the issues with uh, these factories in California. But it seems like all bets are off at this point when it comes to the coronavirus and the aftermath, even though things are now starting to open up and getting back to normal to some extent. Certainly a long way to go uh, to work out all the the things that have been uh, sort of thrown off track in the past couple of months. Yeah, and then the question is, you know, how are we going to deal with this long term? Because this is not going away next week or next month. And uh, I wonder if we'll just be so tired of talking about this that eventually we'll just accept it as part of our daily existence and live with it. We'll see. But I just spoke about, you know, how everything started in Wuhan, China, just a few months ago. And I guess our next guest is sort of an expert in this area. Yeah, we're talking now to uh, Bjorn Yardin, the uh, head of the Asia program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And uh, here in this interview, Mark, uh, we're going to cover quite a bit of ground about uh, China, the um, the geopolitics of the coronavirus crisis, how China is handling this. So here's Dr. Bjorn Yardin explaining how things look from a Chinese perspective in the context of the coronavirus crisis. Well, obviously, when the epidemic first started in China a few months ago, it was a big surprise, obviously, to the Chinese leadership. Uh, And it quickly turned into a potential massive health crisis, uh, which also soon turned into a potential massive economic crisis. And for the perspective of the Chinese leadership, uh, these kind of crises have the potentiality to also lead to a political crisis, which they want to avoid at all costs. Today, when you listen to the rhetoric coming out of the Chinese leadership, it's it's a rhetoric of confidence. They want to portray to the Chinese people and to the outside world that they have the situation under control, the epidemic in China, but also the uh, economic fallout. But of course, this pandemic is far from over. And the Chinese leaders, just like leaders in any other country, don't know what's around the corner. Will it be a second wave, a third wave? How will it impact the global economy? And even if the Chinese economy today is showing signs of recovering, China is still dependent on exports to the outside world and, and investments coming into China. So this also has a long-term potential to create serious problems for the leadership in Beijing. So outwardly, they portray confidence, but I think they still harbor serious concerns. There's some that are saying that they're using this crisis as an opportunity to assert themselves geopolitically. Do you see that as being the mm-hmm. case? And if so, uh, how are they going about doing that? So I think the Chinese government for the last few years, they have taken advantage of their greater resources to increase their influence in various regions in the world and in various areas of global governance. And in the last couple of years, this has been met by increased pushback, primarily from the United States, but also to some extent from Europe. When the crisis happened, the way China acted on the international state, I think it was a mix of very assertive confidence behavior, but it was also a sense that 
China was facing increased criticism from other countries, primarily from Western countries, and that there was a need for China to counter that kind of criticism. And as the situation looks today, I think the perception in many areas of the world is that China has handled this better. They have handled the health crisis better than in many other countries. And of course, uh, the Chinese government, they want to promote their model primarily since they still are worried about the potential for calls for political reform at all. They want to justify their political system, but they're also interested in getting international support for the legitimacy of this system. So I think what they've been doing during the pandemic is to try to use these perceptions, as we see in many parts of the world, that China has handled this better than other places. They want to use that in order to boost domestic support primarily, but also to get international support. So they've been quite active. And and it's a mix, again, between sort of positive uh, messaging look at how well we have handled the crisis. We might provide resources as well as lessons for the rest of the world in order to deal with this kind of emergencies. But you also see a lot of defensive uh, messaging because we also see this kind of criticism uh, against China that already were prevalent before the pandemic hit, but which has increased now during the pandemic in some countries. Primarily, I'm thinking about the United States, where President Donald Trump and the Republican Party are more and more clear that they want to use China. They want China to play a prominent uh, role in the election campaign this year. But we also see increased criticism in some other parts of the world. So at the same time, as they sort of want to portray a positive message, and China is solidaric with other parts of the world, and if you want us to help, we're eager to help. And at the same time, they sort of very harshly try to counter any kind of criticism against China's of this epidemic. Do you see this positive message that they're trying to put forward? Is it getting any buy-in in certain regions, certain countries? In many parts of the world, the views of China and the Chinese government are very positive. Big parts of Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, but also parts of Asia. A majority of people, according to opinion surveys, have quite positive view of China. But if we talk about Western countries, Views are are not that positive. There seems to be a trend in the last four years or so of increasingly negative views of China in some countries. But also, this is not something you see in all European countries, for example. In some in some parts of Europe, the public views on China are still quite positive. But if you look at Sweden, for example, the views are very negative of the Chinese government. So I think what has happened now during the pandemic. Partly is a reinforcement of already existing trends when it comes to perceptions of, of China. In, in many countries, Chinese donations of medical aid and, and China's experience in handling the pandemic has been publicized and has been perceived in the mass media and among the general public quite positively. But in other parts of the world, we already saw a sort of a more and more negative trend in perceptions of China, such as the United States and part of Europe. I think uh, this trend has been further strengthened during the pandemic. There's a lot of focus on China's responsibility for the outbreak in the first place and the kind of measures China has implemented. Uh, I think all these areas have met with a lot of negative press in uh, parts of the world. But you also see in some countries sort of a, a divide in views about China. In some countries in Europe, for example, such as Greece, Hungary, the government 
and political and business elites tend to have a quite positive view on China, cooperation with China, whereas then the general public is more negative. China is getting discussed more. People talk more about China. China really was put in the spotlight. You know, people start talking about China at last it leads to politicization and you hear more critical voices talking about the domestic situation in China, the human rights situations, China's international economic influence and so on. What would account for, is very interesting analysis, what, what would account for these differences between one country and another, even inside of Europe, even inside of certain right. countries between the elites and the general population? Right. So first, if we divide the world very simplistically into the global north and the global south, I think still in many parts of the developing world and developing countries, there's a sense of solidarity with China as another developing country. And also in many parts of the world, it's also appreciation for China's development in the last few decades, the way that the Chinese government has bareheaded economic reform and the country has developed economically and technologically. But if we look within Europe, I think there's a number of different factors at play. One factor is how people in different countries view the European Union and solidarity within the European Union. Economic crisis hit, hit Europe 10 years ago that there's sort of a annoyance with directives coming from Brussels and, and richer member states. We've seen this in Greece, for example. And that can also lead to appreciation for ties with China. And sometimes politicians also use those ties strategically. We see that in Hungary, for example, where the government sort of is trying to use the China card against Brussels to show that we have other options if you press us too hard. Also, the historical legacy plays a part differently in different countries. If you take Spain, for example, they have a history of authoritarian rule during Franco, so a common perception among Spaniards, according to Spanish colleagues, is that people are, uh, due to their own experiences, transitioning from an authoritarian system to a democracy. They are, they are skeptical about criticizing China too hard. In some countries in Europe with a communist past, there's still a very strong anti-communist sentiment among the general populace. We see this in the Czech Republic, for example, and then China might even turn in, into a symbol and becomes a very symbolic political issue to sort of represent their own country's historical past. And then issues such as meeting with the Dalai Lama, for example, can take on a very big symbolic meaning. And if we take Sweden, Sweden traditionally uh, used to have quite stable relations with China. Sweden was the first non-communist European country to establish diplomatic relations with the People's Republic. The Swedish government also was reluctant to criticize China in such a way that it would interfere with stable political uh, relations. So even though the Swedish government often in its diplomatic practice was eager to stand up for human rights abroad, it always criticized Chinese human rights abuses, but it also sort of took on this more realistic approach in relations with Beijing. But in recent years, China became more discussed in Sweden and the media is sort of writing more about human rights abuses. China is, is also uh, using uh, sticks in order to punish different countries, if we take our neighbors, for example, both Denmark and Norway, they used to have quite serious spats with China in the last decades, and the Chinese government punished Denmark and Norway for things they did that didn't please the Chinese government, and that helps to explain why why they today sort of have a more low-key approach when it comes to criticizing Beijing. 
Some have accused China of bullying countries, especially now during this uh, pandemic. For example, Australia over uh, Australia's calls mm-hmm. for a, a WHO investigation of the origins yeah. of the uh, of the virus and the pandemic. And you mentioned the, the cases of Norway and Denmark. So does, does this kind of bullying work, or do you see this as potentially backfiring against China in the uh, medium term? I, I think sometimes it works, and this is not something new, really. And this is something China has been doing against various countries for for quite a few years. And usually what China does then is to implement unofficial economic sanctions. They don't declare it as official sanctions, but they yeah, they make sure that uh, Chinese actors uh, stop buying certain products from companies from the country being criticized. And uh, they might use state propaganda to uh, encourage public boycotts of companies from different countries. And I think this might have an effect because it imposes costs on some countries, if we take Norway as an example, China not only implemented some official economic sanctions against Norway, but also freezed all political contact for six years. And eventually, China and Norway sort of reached an agreement. And that doesn't mean that Norway never criticized China. But still, it seems that Norway is cautious about not doing anything which might interfere with the stable working relations that they now have with China. So, so I think it can have some effects. But it also leads to blowback. So I'm not sure it's a wise long-term strategy, but, but it might have effects in some cases. And what about uh, China's relationship with the uh, United Nations, with international institutions, uh, particularly the WHO, the World Health Organization, which as some have said that uh, China had uh, an inordinate amount of influence over during the early stages of this pandemic? What has happened is that the U.S. government has made this in, into a big issue and criticized WHO and criticized Chinese influence in the WHO and also threatened to withdraw support for the WHO among American allies. There is support for investigating China's role in the WHO, and I think more generally, there is a concern. But at the same time, many, many allies to the U.S. are a bit skeptical about pushing this issue too hard while the pandemic is still in such a serious phase. And at the same time, China is patiently and strategically uh, attempting to increase its influence in existing international organizations, as well as establishing new formats, such as the Belt and Road Initiative and the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. So I think this kind of rivalry between China and U.S., but also to some extent allies to the U.S., such as the EU, Japan, and Australia, I think we're going to see more of that later on. Do you see this as the beginning of a new Cold War now between uh, the United States and China, with other countries perhaps uh, taking various sides? Or do you see this as something that's much more uh, limited to this particular issue of the pandemic and the Trump administration? Or do you see this as being something that will have much more of a lasting impact on uh, geopolitics? Well, I think a big change already began uh, before the pandemic started. And I think what has happened during the pandemic is to reinforce this trend. There's a realization on both sides that this is a long-term rivalry. And the U.S. and China, they have managed to cooperate for many years, but that that never meant that they did away with all the disagreements between them. Primarily, there has always been 
a military rivalry in East Asia, where the U.S. wants to maintain its regional presence through its uh, alliance systems in the region, and where China wants the U.S. to drastically decrease its presence in the region. So what has happened in the last few years is that this rivalry has sort of spread into all kinds of other areas, such as technology, trade, and now we also see it playing out during the pandemic. I'm not sure I would call it the Cold War uh, yet. One aspect that was special during the Cold War was that the United States or the Western Bloc and the Soviet Union, they had opposing visions for how the international system uh, would look like. But what happened between the U.S. and China in recent years is that this ideological aspect has come more to the foreground. So I think we're seeing a rivalry between the U.S. and China. I think it's very likely that it's long-term, but so far it's not comparable really with the rivalry between the Soviet Union and the U.S. during the Cold War. Whether we, we talk in geopolitical terms or we talk in ideological terms, I think that rivalry was more intense and more existential in a way than... And one way of framing this rivalry also is the idea of decoupling, that uh, these mm-hmm. the economies of the United States and China and, and basically the entire world have become so closely uh, connected with uh, global supply mm-hmm. chains and such and most manufacturing taking place in China. Mm-hmm. Do you see decoupling as being an outcome of this uh, pandemic? In some ways, I do. And I think we are already seeing it in the U.S. and in Europe, the discussions about the dependence on China when it comes to medical supplies, for example. Countries feel that they need to decrease this dependence. And I think that, in effect, is a type of decoupling. The policy approach, which has directed relations with China in both Europe and the United States for, for the last three, four decades, has been one of engagement. Chinese economic development was encouraged, but also Chinese participation in different kind of multilateral cooperation. And there was also an encouragement to engage more with China at all levels of society, whether within academia or the cultural field and so on. So what has happened in recent years is within all these kind of different sectors, you see First, you see sort of a disillusionment, right? Because one idea behind engagement was that at least people thought it had a potential to change China's domestic political system and China's international behavior for the better from the perspective of Western countries. And I think in the last few years, it's sort of a disillusionment and people are saying that, well, it didn't really happen. China is just growing more authoritarian and China is becoming more assertive on the international stage. But I think it goes even beyond that because in the last few years, well, first of all, people are disappointed about the potentiality of engagement to change China for the better. But people also increasingly tend to see engagement as a chance for China to influence us. How do you think the recent uh, new legislation that will um, reduce the autonomy of Hong Kong, how will that affect, right. um, how will that affect the China's um, image in the world and the, the, how will you foresee the world will react to that? And do you yeah. see that as a, as a result of the pandemic, using the pandemic as an opportunity mm-hmm. to actually take these measures? We already saw big protests in Hong Kong since last summer. And I think the government in many countries criticize China. It's attempting to do in Hong Kong when it comes to preserving so-called one country, two system. 
And we also saw some legislation primarily from the United States to punish China for its actions in Hong Kong. But on the whole, it didn't amount to so much. It didn't build up pressure to implement policies that really would impose serious costs to the Chinese leadership. And I think that's, that's China's calculation as well. I don't think the Chinese leadership is that worried. So you don't see Hong, so you don't see Hong Kong as really as a flashpoint, even if it's very symbolic. Do you see any other flashpoints yeah. in this sort of the wake of this uh, pandemic that could mm-hmm. lead to greater decoupling or even conflict? Well, well, I think the whole issue uh, around investigating uh, the outbreak of this pandemic, exactly how did it start and exactly what's the responsibility of Chinese authorities? What did they do? Did they conceal something? I think that issue uh, will continue to be a big flashpoint. And I think I think Donald Trump and uh, Republicans as well as Democrats in, in the U.S., they're going to use that during the election campaign. And I think you will see that issue play out between the U.S. and China in the ongoing rivalry. And also in other parts of the world, also the European Union and many European countries, they also call for investigation into the outbreak as part of the pandemic, including China's role. Uh, and of course, China is not interested in allowing an independent investigation into into the outbreak of the pandemic, including its own responsibility in it. So I, I think that issue will continue to be hotly debated. And just one more point on Hong Kong. I agree with what you said, that Hong Kong is becoming a symbolic issue. And I think the protesters in Hong Kong and the democracy activists, they have the support from many people in the world. And, and I think that might also impact how people view uh, China. But when it comes to real concrete action from other countries, I think so far we haven't been seeing that much. So based on that, I don't expect other countries to be willing to pick a real fight with China over Hong Kong. What what do you see as the most important processes now in terms of uh, trying to find uh, accountability for the pandemic, for managing the pandemic, and for taking a geopolitical advantage of the pandemic? Right. So, of course, I'm European, so I'm interested in Europe-China relations. So I will be looking at what kind of signals are coming out from Brussels and European capitals in the week ahead and how China reacts to that. Uh, and we also uh, been seeing some statement coming out of the European Commission criticizing Chinese disinformation. And during the pandemic, and we talked about that earlier, the China issue has become more politicized. So in Germany, for example, some parts of, of the oppositions are criticizing Angela Merkel for being too soft on China and, and realizing that we can't deal with China in the way that we have so far we also see that kind of criticism toward EU institutions, the EU Commission, in handling China. So I think that, that discussion is going to continue. And I think some people who uh, advocate a tougher approach to China, they sort of hope that this pandemic can work as a catalyst for that. You might see some signs of it in some countries, but uh, I think it's an open question exactly how it will play out. Right, Dr. Bjorn Jardim. Head of the Asia Program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Thank you very much for joining us here on Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic. Thanks, Lester. My pleasure.